last week we uh, looked at the fourth commandment, uh, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And uh, we saw that this commandment was given for us. In other words, the fourth commandment, like all the rest of the commandments, they were given for our good. It was God's way of telling us to slow down, right? Take a rest and come to me. Now, this is probably the reason why you are here. God is telling you to slow down. God is telling you to come to me, to rest in me. And when we gather for worship, we are gathering at the Father's house. We are gathering and finding rest in him. Now, today, what I want to do is I want to revisit this commandment, and I want to look at the other side. You see, if on one side this commandment is about rest, the other side, this commandment is about work. Now, if you look at the fourth commandment, it goes from verse 8 to verse 11. Sandwiched in between the commandment to rest and to remember is the implicit command to work. I have it up here. This is... Uh, Exodus 20, verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So the fourth commandment on one side is about resting, but the other is about working. And so today what I want to do uh, for the time that we have here is I want to use the fourth commandment as a launching pad into a more comprehensive discussion into work. In other words, I want to try to present to you a biblical theology of what work is. In other words, I want to ask the question, uh, what does the Bible say about work? Right. You know, if, for many of us, you know, if I were to ask, what does your faith have to do with Sunday? I think many of you can answer that. Yeah, Sunday is a day we go to church and we worship and gather with the saints. But if I were to ask you, what does your faith have to do with your Monday through Saturday? I suspect many of us wouldn't know how to answer that. And so today, what I want to do is I want to present to you, I want to just survey the Bible and see what it says about this very, very important thing called work. And the structure that I, I want to follow is this. Uh, should be here somewhere. Okay. Uh, someone, okay, there it goes. Thank you. Thank you. Sound room. Charles is back there. Uh, this is the structure that I want to follow. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, which is the biblical uh, plot line. Uh, but I want to look at creation, fall, redemption and understand or view work in this, in this uh, structure. So really ask the question, uh, what ought work to be? Uh, what work is now, and what work can be through the gospel. So let's start first with uh, uh, what work ought to be, how God had originally intended work to be. If we open up uh, to the first page of the Bible, there we are introduced to a God who is eternal, a God who is all-sufficient, a God who needs nothing, yet he is a God who is working. The Bible wants us to understand creation, this act of God creating the world as work. You see, God in the opening chapter of the Bible, he is an architect. 
He is an engineer. He is a designer. He is a contractor. He is working with his hands to create this world. God is a worker. Further, the Bible tells us that this work isn't something that's detached from God, but this work is an expression of who he is. You know, Romans 1, uh, Romans 1.20 tells us this, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived in all the things that have been made. In other words, when God is working, he is so invested in his work, he is so invested to the point that you can actually see God in his work. You can see his character, you can see his power, you can see his goodness, his wisdom in his work. His work is an expression of who he is. Now, you'll see this often in in the arts, right? Whether it's a painter, a designer, uh, a musician, a producer, a writer, when you encounter their work, you can feel or sense who they are through it. Their work is a good expression of who they are. And because of this, oftentimes we don't distinguish between the work and the person, right? If you stand in front of a Monet painting, what do you say? You say, that's Monet. When you uh, watch a uh, Scorsese film, you say, that's Scorsese. Or when you hear a Lady Gaga song, you don't say, that's a Lady Gaga song. You say, that's Lady Gaga. Why? Because for them, their work is an expression of who they are. It's a good representation of who they are. You see, for God, work is an expression of who he is. Now, we see this further if we go into the creation account. We see that all that God creates, everything that he makes, he gives it responsibility, he gives it function. Everything in this world has a role, everything in this world has a job to do. For instance, the sun is supposed to govern the day. The ground is supposed to bring up plants and trees. This is amazing. If you actually sit back and look at creation, you'll notice that everything in creation, everything in creation is working. There is nothing idle in creation. For instance, you remember when you were a little child, you would just look at the ground and you would be fascinated by ants. You ever an observant ant? An ant is busy working. No one taught the ant how to work. It was designed to work by its creator. As we continue on with this creation account, finally on the sixth day, we see that God, he creates human beings. And the Bible tells us that God created humans in his image. And here is what the Bible says about this. Charles? Yes, here's, here's what it says. Uh, Genesis 1:28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves 
on the earth. And so God, when he creates man, he tells man to do what? To be fruitful, to create, and to subdue and exercise dominion over. We see this uh, in a slightly different way in Genesis 2.15. Uh, Genesis 2.15. There you go. Uh, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Genesis 2.15 tells us that God, he created man to work and to keep the garden. You see, like the rest of creation, God creates humans to work. He creates humans in his image so that they can do work. And if we look at uh, Genesis 2.15, Genesis 1.28, we can almost summarize all of work into two categories. The two categories are creating and caring. Creating and caring. All of work seems to fall under these categories. I mean, if you think about the work that you're in now, there are probably elements of both, but there's a heavy leaning towards one. If your job is to clean, sure, you can be creative cleaning, but most of the time, your job to clean is, is a caring job. Or if you're a student, your job is probably to create. You have to write papers, you have to generate reports. If you're a homemaker, there are probably elements of both, but there's probably a heavier leaning towards caring. If you're in medicine, a lot of the work that you'll do is in caring. If you're in programming, you'll probably do a lot of creating. And see, this is in no way a coincidence. If you think about the kind of work that God does, God creates and then he extends providence over. He cares. He creates and he cares. This is the kind of work that God does. He creates and he cares. And when God created us in his image, he gave us work that is to create and to care. And so as we think about what work ought to be, we see from the very beginning that work is something that is good. Work is not a result of sin. Adam and Eve didn't work because of sin. They worked because God was a worker. They worked because they were made in the image of God. See, Adam and Eve didn't work to make a living, but they worked because they were living. Now, I know this idea might be very foreign to some of us. Right? We view work as a necessity, as almost as an unwanted necessity. And for many of us, our goal is to probably work as much as we can so that we can no longer work, so that we don't have to work. But friends, there is nothing more dehumanizing than for a person to be idle, than for a person to be unproductive. You know, sure, there are times, and I admit it myself, there are times when we feel like we don't want to do anything, right? When we desperately desire to do nothing. We just want to be lazy, and bum around, right? But if you do that for an extended period of time, your, your humanity will start to decay. 
See, working is innate to who we are as God's image-bearing creatures. You know, today's passage actually draws our attention to this. In Exodus 20, 11, in the fourth commandment, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. You see, the reason why we have this work-rest pattern is because we were made in God's image. That's how we were designed to function. And so we see in the opening chapters of the Bible what work ought to be. Work is something good. Work is something essential to who we are. But we know that not too long after, after God creates the first humans, they disobey God, and as a result, sin enters into the world. And so when sin enters the world, we have to ask the question, how does sin affect work? Well, Genesis 3 puts it pretty plain. It says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. See, work which was once good, work which was once pleasant, work which was once fruitful, as a result of sin, now becomes worrisome, it becomes difficult, and it becomes frustrating. Notice what it says. It says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles. You know what thorns and thistles are? Thorns and thistles are something that's foreign, right? Something that's unexpected, Right. Adam probably planted an apple seed, and instead of getting an apple tree, sometimes he got thorns and thistles. It's something foreign, something unexpected, something not planned. And what's thorns and thistles? Thorns and thistles, you know, a seed is supposed to give life and bring forth life, but thorns and thistles, what do they do? They choke up life. They take away life. They suck life. Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Work is filled with thorns and thistles. I mean, you think about a good day at work, right? You know, sometimes we have really good days. Think about a great day at work. What is a great day at work like? It's not when you go to the office and do nothing, right? But a good day at work is what? You go to the office, you have a plan, there's something that you want to do, there's a task or project, and it goes according to plan. Nothing unexpected, nothing frustrating. That is a good day at work. What's a bad day at work? You have something planned, you have a schedule, but then thorns and thistles. You don't get the results that you've worked for. Or unexpected things gets put on your to-do list. Meetings run longer than they were supposed to. And oh, there's that coworker. That life-sucking coworker, he comes by your desk. That life-sucking coworker, that sucking coworker, he comes and he messes up your day. Thorns and thistles. Right? And because of all this, Genesis 3 tells us, by the sweat of our face, we will eat bread. 
because of work, sin is toilsome. Because of work, because of sin, work is difficult. Because of sin, work becomes work. See, God's original design for work is, is disrupted, distorted, and disfigured. You know, I want to just briefly point out two ways in which we see uh, the, the disfigurement of work as a result of sin. First, sin, what sin does is sin causes us to devalue work. You know, just earlier we saw that work was essential to who we are, but work was not necessary for our livelihood. In other words, Adam and Eve had everything they needed. They didn't work to live. They didn't work to make a living. But remember, they worked because they were living, because they were made in the image of God. They worked to contribute towards the flourishing of a common good. They worked for the cultivation of God's good world. Well, after sin, all of this changes. Thorns and thistles means that there's scarcity. Right? Thorns and thistles means work is not always productive. It means that there are limited resources. Thorns and thistles means that everyone has to work and that some will produce more than others, but because there's scarcity, those who have will unlikely share with those who don't. See, because of sin, work becomes a necessity for livelihood. Because of sin, we have to work to make a living. And this drastically devalues work. You know, if I were to ask you really, what is work? Many of us would just simply answer, work is nothing more than financial compensation for the things that you do, right? We work for a company, and the company pays you X. Work nowadays is defined almost exclusively in economic terms. That's why most people choose a field of work to go into. That's why I chose my job, right? You know, it's true not just for employees, but it's also true for companies. It's all about the bottom line. How much is this employee worth? How much profit does he bring to our company? More and more work for companies and employees it's become more and more cutthroat. It's just about the bottom line, just about profit, just about making a livelihood. And this drastically devalues work. If work is just about a paycheck, about merely living, then it drastically devalues what God had intended work to be. God did not create this world so that he can make a living. So sin causes us to devalue work. But if sin causes us to devalue work, I think for some, sin could also cause us to overvalue work. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, work was an expression of God's identity. Work was an expression of who he is and was. And for us, that is what work was intended to be. But because of sin, work is no longer an expression of our identity, but it becomes the source of our identity. We start to overvalue work. 
mean, just think about the questions you're asked when you first meet someone, right? The first question is usually, what's your name? And the second question is what? What do you do? What work are you in? Why? Because somehow we've attached one's identity to the work that they do. A lot of us have brought into the, have, we have bought into the idea that I can find my identity through a job. I can find my identity through a profession, through a career, through a title, through a diploma. You know, we all know what that feels like. You know, if you haven't come into a job that you have been seeking or a position that you were aiming for, and you've brought into this idea, you bought into this idea, what does that feel like? It feels like you are incomplete, that you don't have an identity. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, a preacher uh, in the UK, he, uh, before becoming a pastor, he was uh, a doctor. He was a, a physician. And he knew a lot of physicians. And uh, after becoming a pastor, he had observed that most physicians, most doctors, they're so consumed with their work that they actually become just a doctor. He, he remarked that many physicians, they can probably write on their tombstone, born a man, died a doctor. Because that's just all that they are now, a doctor. You know, certainly work has become, for some of us, an idol. Work is the source of our identity, not an expression of our identity. We demand that work gives us meaning and purpose. We have overvalued work. See, God did not intend work to give us our identity, but we have made it into an idol, demanding that it does. Either work is an idol, or maybe the things that you can attain through work like money, power, prestige, position, those things are an idol. And so work has become overvalued. Sin, we see, distorting work. It either devalues work or it overvalues work. And so what is the solution? What does the gospel do? How does it redeem work? Well, if sin changes our relationship with work, I think the next question that we can ask is, how does the gospel redeem work? And let me just throw out just a few suggestions here, and I'm going to try to paint in broad strokes. But how does the gospel redeem work? How does the cross and the resurrection of Jesus change the way we view work? Well, let me throw out a few reflections. First, the gospel frees us from the desire to make work our identity. The gospel frees us from the desire to make work our identity. This is what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It's from 7, uh, 21 to 24. Paul says this. Were you a bondservant when you were called? That means when you were called by Christ. Do not be concerned about it. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, 
There let him remain with God. You know what Paul is saying here as he's addressing the church, as he's addressing people who are probably uh, bondservants and those who are masters, those who are free and those who are slaves, those who are employees versus those who are employers. You You know what Paul is saying as he's speaking to the church filled with just different types of people? He's saying in a very daring way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're a slave, that doesn't define you. Why? Because you're actually free in Christ. And if you're free, that doesn't matter too because you actually belong to Christ. Paul is saying your job, your status, your career, these things don't define you. They don't make up who you are. They are not the source of your identity. You want to know what your identity is? Your identity is made up of whom you belong to, and that's Christ. Christ is the source of your identity. It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter your career, your status. These things don't define you. Paul is, in a daringly bold way, he's saying it doesn't matter. You know what should define you? Not your work, but the one who made you. He should define you. Not your acquaintances, not the people that you hang around with, not the people that you know, but the one who died for you. He is the source of your identity. Not your career, but your calling into God's kingdom. And for parents, not even your children. Your children are not the source of your identity. But your identity is in the truth that you are a child of God. This is the way the gospel redeems work. The gospel frees us from this desire desire of making work our identity. Second point, um, we can see that the gospel, it redeems work. It redeems work. What do I mean by that? Well, because the gospel frees us, we no longer undervalue work and we no longer overvalue work. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 21 into, uh, 22 into chapter 4. He says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. Further, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You know, I love what Paul is doing here because first he addresses bondservants, right? And bondservants, right, you know, employees, people sort of, you know, towards the bottom of the the work ladder, you know, bond servants can undervalue work, right? Well, my work is really not that important. I'm just here for a paycheck. You know, my master is making me do these things, and you know what? I'll only work hard whenever he sees me. Bond servants can undervalue work. But Paul is saying, hey, listen, don't undervalue work. You have a master in heaven. Work not to please your earthly master, but work to please your heavenly master. 
And then he addresses masters, those in pe in, in people in position of power. And those are people who can overvalue work, who can think, you know what, I'm this great, great person. I have a lot of employees underneath me. I've grown a company and a business. And they tend to overvalue work and find their identity in it. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, don't overvalue your position. Don't squeeze your employees for profit. He's saying, hey, don't think you're all that. Because you have a master too. You have a master. You see, the gospel, it, it frees us from, this, from this, uh, this constant desire of wanting to undervalue work, of seeing work as just a, a means to an end, uh, a way to live, and overvaluing work, of seeing work as the source of who we are. You see, the gospel frees us and says, you know what? We have a master. And we work for him who has saved us. And so what happens? For a Christian who is freed by the gospel, Christians ought to be diligent in their work, yet not allow work to consume them. They are to be faithful in their work without being obsessive about their work. You know, one of the things I love about the fourth commandment, if you read it carefully, it says this, do all your work in six days doesn't say in seven days do your work, but everything that you have to do in seven days, do it in six days. You know what that means? That means for the Christian, they ought to be more diligent than others. Students, you ought to be more studious than others, because while others have seven days to do the work, we actually have six days. Do all your work in six days. See, the gospel calls us to be diligent and be faithful in our work, understanding that it is an expression of who we are, redeemed in Christ, without falling into the trap of making work our identity. And finally, I think the, the last reflection that I want to share is the gospel transforms our workplace into a mission field. The gospel transforms our workplace into a mission field. You know, if the gospel only goes so far as to make us diligent, if the gospel only goes so far as to make us good workers, that falls short. See, not only are we supposed to be moral people at work, not only are we supposed to be people with higher ethics, but we're supposed to be one who care for souls, who see our work as a mission field. You know, if I can be honest, you know, a lot of uh, literature and work has been done in the area of faith and work uh, over the past 10 years. A lot of people have been trying to integrate faith into work. And, it, you know, a lot of that has been about transforming the industry that you are in, right? Setting principles and biblical ethics and, and higher calling for that industry. But, you know, I think a lot of that falls short because not much is made of sharing the gospel with those who actually work in the industry. Too much of faith and work is about transforming the industry. But the gospel is really about sharing the good news with those who work in the industry. You know, the gospel gives work a greater purpose 
It gives us a greater purpose of not just wanting to be the best in what we do. Because that only results in people saying, wow, Christians are great workers. Wow, Christians are really, really good people. If that's the extent that we go to, then we fall short. Because we actually need to share why. Why we are working hard. Because of our Savior. You know, C.S. Lewis um, was once asked by a group of students how Christians should differ from non-Christians at work or in school. For those of you who know, you know, C.S. Lewis was a professor um, trained at Oxford, taught at Cambridge, and uh, he's done lots and lots of work in literature. And he was asked by Christians, hey, how are you know, Christians supposed to be in the work field? How are Christians supposed to be in, the, uh, in academia, at school? And C.S. Lewis said something that's pretty surprising. He said, you know what? Christians probably shouldn't care as much as non-believers about their work or their field. It doesn't mean that they don't work hard. But if you think about a non-believer, that's all that they have. That's all that they have. If the field is literature, you know, a non-Christian is going to be super excited about the first editions and the relics that they have of classics. They would be super ecstatic because that's all that they have. But C.S. Lewis says, for the Christian, not so much. Because the Christian knows that there is something so much more important. In the field of work that you are in, in the things that you do, C.S. Lewis says, the Christian knows that the most important thing is the saving of souls, the transforming of souls. I don't know how many of us view our workplace as a mission field, the business partners that we meet, the coworkers that we interact with. But God has placed you there for the transforming of souls. If the gospel just redeems us to make us great workers, that falls short. For those of you who are homemakers, who are called to be at home and to care, your home is your mission field. It's not simply to raise children, but your calling now is to raise disciples, to make disciples of Jesus. Your home is your mission Let me um, briefly end with this. Um, you know, as we correct our understanding of, work, of what work is and now how the gospel redeems us and frees us, I just want to briefly say this. Um, the, this idea that we have of retirement has to now be radically challenged by the gospel. There isn't a single instance of retirement in the Bible retirement that we normally uh, understand it to be, where it's of leisure, relaxation, and vacation. In fact, there is no retirement in the Bible. You can retire from the job through which you made your livelihood, but that does not relieve you from work. 
that doesn't free you from service to God for his kingdom. You see, if you had no more work to do on earth for God, he would call you home. But whatever life stage you are at, the Lord has placed you here to work, to work and to serve for a higher calling. And until the day our master calls us all home, let us work and labor for things that are eternal, for things that matter. Please, in the areas that you are in, make your work your mission field. Let's pray.